This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. It is true, such men are almost good, but almost to hit the mark is really to miss it. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by George Whitfield in England sometime before 1738. The sermon was published in 1738, so it was probably preached before that. Joel, he was called the marvel of this age by the newspapers at the time. He preached to an estimated 10 million people, and this is before the days of internet, uh, phone, or video. He was also estimated to having preached 18,000 sermons in his life. Uh, George Whitfield was a man whose name is instantly recognizable in the history of famous Christians, and in this sermon, he goes right for the heart of those who aren't decided. That's right. Whitfield, born in 1714. He would only live to be 55, died in 1770. Uh, He was born into a family where the father died when he was two, and he grew up helping run an inn with his mother. He was very dramatic from an early age, and he would reenact Bible stories in in his home in England there. Uh, He wanted to go to Oxford, but his family didn't make enough with him and his mother running the inn, so he went to Harvard as what's called a servitor, and he basically had to to serve the rest of the student body there. He he bathed them. He helped clean up after them. He carries their books, and, and this was how he was allowed to go to college at prices that he could afford. It was considered pretty much the most demeaning position a student could have. When he gets there, he is invited to join this group that uh, started the year before. They, they read books. They did devotionals. They prayed together. They would fast two days a week. They met up three or four evenings every week. And to be honest, they were getting made fun of. They were jeered. They were mocked. Uh, They were given the insulting nickname, the Holy Club. And the idea behind the group was that every hour could be spent serving God and could be set aside for him. And they wanted to put it all together in a routine. So, you know, this night is the night we read the Bible. This is when we go visit orphans and teach them to read. This is the time when we're going to go visit those in prison. And we're going to do the things God has commanded to us, but we're going to set it all up into a system. This group was founded by Charles and John Wesley, and many of the club's members would be instrumental in bringing about the Great Awakening. Charles and John Wesley were friends of Whitfield's, and he would even edit a hymn by Charles Wesley, and it would become the song that we now know, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He graduates with a bachelor's degree in Bible, but he doesn't join a church himself right away. Instead, he becomes a traveling preacher. He he travels all around England, and he preaches and visits churches, and he becomes quite well known for it. So much so that in 1740, he was invited to come out to America to, to help preach there. And this is 1740. This is right during the Great Awakening, right as it's starting up and, and coming into full swing. Uh, so it's prime time uh, for that for that era of, of traveling preachers. Whitfield does a lot of stuff in America, a lot of incredible things, but he also has some contentions when it comes to the uh, American era of his life. He eventually settles down in Georgia, and he does advocate for making Georgia a slave state, and his organization there in Georgia definitely did own 
slaves. It, it's, it's, this isn't something we love to talk about. We don't like to talk about the areas of life where these spiritual leaders we cover fall short. But we also want to make sure that we, we, we give accurate historical facts and that we don't bury history or sugarcoat it in any way. But as he was traveling, he was able to draw crowds to himself with fiery sermons. Uh, we covered the Great Awakening on our episode on Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But remember that this is a very passionate, emotional appeal calling on people to live a new life. They are emphasizing this really important concept of a new birth and it, as it a reaction to the gospel. One of the neat things about Whitfield's traveling is that he really utilized media very well for, for that time. Uh, he worked with local printing press to print sermons that were being preached by him, uh, and they advertised and kind of, you know, circulated when he was traveling and where he was going. Um, and his sermons were circulated a lot, the, these prints that were coming out of these sermons. And one of the people that was at a printing press working and printing sermons that he would have been preaching was Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin has a really interesting relationship with George Whitfield and his thoughts on him. He he would go on to say that he's a great speaker and that he actually got removed from the pulpits at the time over some disagreements. So Whitfield just started preaching in fields, and these fields would fill up with people, groups as large as 25,000. And it's important to remember, back in those days, 25,000 is a, a stadium-sized amount of people, and they're doing it without cars, coming in horses and buggies. It's just a huge number for those days. And this is without an audio system, no microphone. There's no big-screen TV for you to look at. I mean, you just have to listen for his voice, basically. And so to hear a man preach like that and to be preaching Jesus Christ and see these huge crowds, Franklin was really impressed by that. He actually said he didn't used to believe generals could get 25,000 men together in ancient wars until he saw a preacher do it. And Franklin would have actually a long relationship with George Whitfield. They would stay friends for the rest of their lives. And at one point, as crazy as this sounds, there's a letter where Benjamin Franklin like proposes to Whitfield, we should go start a Christian colony, like a new state in Ohio. It doesn't end up happening, but it's definitely a weird part of history. For a brief time in 1738, he served as a Paris priest in Savannah. And he saw children who were wandering around without homes and without parents. Georgia was a penal colony, which means that the, the colony was set up by criminals, by debtors and, uh, you know, petty thieves. And uh, they were not properly trained to do so, to clear forests and to farm, uh, anything like that. And so a lot of them uh, were malnourished, you know, they were starving and dying, and these kids were ended up being orphaned. And, and these orphans really had a huge effect on George Whitfield, so much so that, that it moved him to... to start a fundraiser. He basically took his, his traveling preaching uh, around America and raised money for the orphans and started an orphanage that, that is still known today called Bethesda. He preached all over. He preached in Bermuda, the Netherlands, Gibraltar, across the American colonies, Ireland, Scotland, all over England. And remember that this was at a time when it wasn't easy to get around. He couldn't just hop on a plane or a train. He had to get there by a boat. He had to do these things, you know, on horseback and buggy. And he was a traveling preacher who really impacted the world, but he was not without his flaws. In this sermon, an almost Christian, 
we're still at the early days of Whitfield's life. He's preaching this when he's 24, and he's talking about people who almost believe. Maybe they think they are Christians, or maybe they live in a Christian culture and assume that by that they kind of know the Lord and the Bible. But Whitfield is calling them out and saying, no, you're an almost Christian, but an almost Christian is just as bad as a non-Christian. You need to know the Lord personally. One of the things I find so interesting about this sermon is is kind of the, the era, the window in which it's preached in, because this is early, early America. This is pre- Constitution America. This is colonial America. And, you know, 1740, some of these people that he's speaking to, this audience, you know, some of their parents and grandparents were settlers, were pioneers. These were Quakers and Puritans that, that were moving to America for spiritual freedom, for religious freedom. And here... We, you know, we're, we're only a generation or two removed, and, and Whitfield's speaking to these massive crowds that seem like they no longer take their faith seriously. You know, he's calling them almost Christians, and he, and he goes through the sermon in different examples, pointing out different examples of things that hold you back from being real Christians, and, you know, he, he mentions things like materialism or what he calls sensual desires, uh, but I, I do find it interesting that that he's calling out this generation, this specific audience um, that has already seemed to move away from the roots of, of their parents and grandparents. I can't help but, you know, compare it to, to modern day. Here we are now 300 years removed from that, and that, that drift just seems to keep on going. The problem hasn't changed. It's just, it's just expanded. It's just gotten bigger with more people and more time. Um, I think there are a lot of almost Christians today for sure. Acts 26, 28. You almost persuaded me to become a Christian. The chapter out of which the text is taken contains the admirable account which the great St. Paul gave of his wonderful conversion from Judaism to Christianity when he was called to make his defense before Festus, a Gentile governor, and King Agrippa. Our blessed Lord had long since foretold that when the Son of Man should be lifted up, his disciples should be brought before kings and rulers, for his name's sake, for a testimony to them. And very good was the design of infinite wisdom in ordaining it. For Christianity, being from the beginning a doctrine of the cross, the princes and rulers of the earth thought themselves too high to be instructed by such mean teachers, or too happy to be disturbed by such unwelcome truths, that they would have always continued strangers to Jesus Christ and Him crucified had not the apostles, by being brought before them, gained opportunities of preaching to them Jesus and the resurrection. St. Paul knew full well that this was the main reason why his blessed master permitted his enemies at this time to arraign him at a public bar, and in compliance with the divine will, thinks it not sufficient just to make his defense, but endeavors at the same time to convert his judges. And this he did with such demonstration of the spirit and of power that Festus, unwilling to be convinced by the strongest evidence, cries out with a loud voice, Paul, much learning has made you mad. To which the brave apostle, like a true follower of the Holy Jesus, meekly replies, I am not mad, most noble Festus, 
but speak the words of truth and seriousness. But in all probability, seeing King Agrippa more affectioned with his discourse, and observing in him an inclination to know the truth, he applies himself more particularly to him. The king knows of these things, before whom I also speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. And then, that if possible he might complete his wished-for conversion, he with a unique strain of oratory addresses himself still more closely. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe them. At which the passions of the king began to work so strongly that he was obliged in open court to own himself affected by the prisoner's preaching and to cry out, Paul, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. Which words taken with the context afford us a lively representation of the different reception, which the doctrine of Christ's ministers, who come in the power and spirit of St. Paul, meets with nowadays in the minds of men. For they, like this great apostle, speak with the words of truth and seriousness, and with such energy and power that all their adversaries cannot justly attack or resist. Yet too many, like the noble Festus, are either too proud to be taught, or too sensual, too careless, or too worldly-minded to live up to the words, in order to excuse themselves, cry out that much learning, much study, or, what is more unaccountable, much piety, has made them mad. And though, blessed be God, all do not disbelieve our report. Yet among those who gladly receive the word and confess that we speak the words of truth and seriousness, there are so few who arrive at any high degree of piety than that of Agrippa, or are any farther persuaded than to be almost Christians, that I cannot but think it highly necessary to warn my dear hearers of the danger of such a state. And therefore, from the words of the text, we'll endeavor to show these three things. First, what is meant by an almost Christian? Secondly, what are the chief reasons why so many are no more than almost Christians? Thirdly, I will consider the ineffectiveness, danger, absurdity, and uneasiness which attends those who are but almost Christians, and then conclude with a general call to action to set up all upon striving not only to be almost, but altogether Christians. And first, I am to consider what is meant by an almost Christian. An almost Christian, if we consider in him in respect to his duty to God, is one that stops between two opinions, that wavers between Christ and the world, that would reconcile God and money, light and darkness, Christ and Baal. It is true that he has an inclination to religion, but then he is very cautious, not that he doesn't go too far in it. His false heart is always crying out, Spare yourselves, do yourself no harm. He prays that God's will may be done on earth as it is in heaven, but he is very partial in his obedience and fondly hopes that God will not be extreme to mark everything that he willfully does at sin. Though an inspired apostle has told him that he who offends in one point is guilty of all. But chiefly, he depends upon much outward appearances, and on that account looks upon himself as righteous and despises others. Though at the same time, he is as great a stranger to the divine life as any other person. 
In short, he is fond of the form, but never experiences the power of godliness in his heart. He goes on year after year attending on the means of grace, but then, like Pharaoh's lean cow, he is never the better, but rather the worse for it. If you consider him in respect to his neighbor, he is one that is strictly just to all, but then this does not proceed from any love to God or regard to man, but only through a principle of self-love, because he knows dishonesty will spoil his reputation and consequently choke his thriving in the world. He is one that depends much upon being good and contents himself with the consciousness of having done no one any harm, though he reads in the gospel that the unprofitable servant was cast out into outer darkness and the barren fig tree was cursed and dried up from the roots, not for being bad, but no fruit. He is no enemy to charitable contributions in public, if not too frequently requested, but then he is unfamiliar with the kind offices of visiting the sick and imprisoned, clothing the naked, and relieving the hunger in a private matter. He thinks that these things belong only to the clergy, though his own false heart tells him that nothing but pride keeps him from exercising these acts of humility, and that Jesus Christ in the 25th chapter of St. Matthew condemns persons to everlasting punishment, not merely for being fornicators, drunkards, or extortioners, but for neglecting these charitable offices. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And when he will say to them on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will also say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, Truthfully I say to you, as much as you have not done it to the least of these my brethren, you did not to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment to me. I thought proper to give you this whole passage of Scripture at large, because your Savior lays such a particular stress upon it. And yet, it is so little listened to that ye were to judge by the practice of Christians, one should be tempted to think there was no such verses in the Bible. But to proceed in the character of an almost Christian, if we consider him in respect of himself, as we said he was strictly honest to his neighbor, so he is likewise strictly sober in himself. But then both his honesty and sobriety proceed from the same principle of a false self-love. It is true he runs not into the same excess of party with other men, but then it is not out of obedience to the laws of God, but either because his constitution will not allow intemperance, or rather because he is cautious of hurting his reputation or making himself unfit for business. But though he is so prudent as to avoid intemperance and excess, yet he always goes to the extreme of what is allowable. It is true he is no drunkard, but then he has no Christian sense of self-denial. He cannot think our Savior to be so strict a master as to deny us to indulge ourselves in some passions or pleasures. And so by this means he is destitute of a sense of true religion. 
as much as if he lived in debauchery or any other crimes. As to settling his principles as well as practice, he is guided more by the world than by the word of God. For his part, he cannot think the way to heaven so narrow as some would make it, and so doesn't consider much what Scripture requires, as what such and such a good man does, or what will best suit his own corrupt preferences. Upon this account, he is not only very cautious himself, but likewise very careful of young converts, whose faces are set heavenward, and so is always acting the devil's part, abidding them spare themselves, though they are doing no more than what the scripture strictly requires them to do, the consequence of which is that he suffers not himself to enter into the kingdom of God, and those that are entering in he hinders. So lives the almost Christian. Not that I can say I have fully described him to you, but from these outlines and sketches of his character, if your consciences have done their proper work and made a particular application of what has been said in your own hearts, I cannot but be afraid that some of you are seeing yourself in this unpleasant as it is to be viewed this way. And so I can do nothing but hope that you will join with the apostle in the words immediately following the text and wish yourselves to be not only almost, but altogether Christians. From here I proceed to the second general thing proposed, to consider the reasons why so many are no more than almost Christians. And the first reason I will mention is because so many set out with false notions of religion. Though they live in a Christian country, yet they don't know what Christianity is. This perhaps may be a hard saying, but experience sadly convinces you the truth of it. For some place, religion, in being of this or that communion, more in morality, most in a round of duties and a model of performances, and few, very few, acknowledge it to be what it really is, a thorough inward change of nature, a divine life, a vital participation of Jesus Christ, a union of the soul with God, which the apostle expresses by saying, he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Here it happens so that many, even the most knowing professors, when you come to converse with them concerning the essence, the life, the soul of religion, I mean our new birth in Jesus Christ, confess themselves quite ignorant of the matter and cry out with Nicodemus, How can this thing be? And no wonder then that so many are only almost Christians when so many not know what Christianity is. No marvel that so many take up the outward appearance when they are quite strangers to the power of godliness or content themselves with the shadow when they know so little about the substance of it. And this is one cause why so many are almost and so few are altogether Christians. A second reason that may be assigned why so many are no more than almost Christians is a terrific fear of man. Multitudes there are and have been who, though awakened by a sense of the divine life, have tasted and felt the powers of the world to come. Yet out of a base sinful fear of being outcasted or despised by men, having suffered all those good impressions to wear off, it is true they have some acknowledgement for Jesus Christ, but then, like Nicodemus, they would come to him only by night. They are willing to serve him, but then they would do it secretly for fear of the Jews. They have a mind to see Jesus, 
but then they cannot come to him because of the press and for fear of being laughed at and ridiculed by those with whom they used to sit at mealtimes. But well did our Savior prophesy of such persons, How can you love me who receive honor one of another? Have they never read that friendship of this world is enmity with God, and that our Lord himself has threatened, He who will be ashamed of me or of my words in this wicked and adulterous generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and of his holy angels. No wonder that so many are no more than almost Christians, since so many love the praise of men more than the honor which comes from God. A third reason why so many are no more than almost Christians is a reigning love of money. This was the pitiable cause of that forward young man in the gospel who came running to our blessed Lord and kneeling before him inquired what he must do to inherit eternal life. To whom our blessed master replied, You know the commandments. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. To which the young man replied, All these I have kept from my youth. But when our Lord proceeded to tell him, Yet you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. He was grieved at that saying and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Poor youth. He had a good mind to be a Christian and to inherit eternal life, but thought it too dear if it could be purchased at no less an expense than of his estate. And so many, both young and old nowadays, come running to worship our blessed Lord in public and kneel before him in private and inquire at his gospel what they must do to inherit eternal life. But when they find they must renounce the self-enjoyment of riches and forsake all in affection to follow him, they cry, The Lord pardon us in this thing. We pray you have us excused. But is heaven so small a trifle in men's esteem as not to be worth a little bit of coin? Is eternal life so small a purchase as not to deserve the temporary renunciation of a few transitory riches? Surely it is. But however inconsistent such a behavior may be, this controlling love of money is too commonly the fatal cause why so many are no more than almost Christians. Nor is the love of pleasure a less uncommon or a less fatal cause. Why are so many no more than almost Christians? Thousands and ten thousands there are who despise riches and would willingly be true disciples of Jesus Christ if parting with their money would make them so. But when they are told that our blessed Lord has said, He who will come after him must deny himself, like the pitiable young man before mentioned, they go away sorrowful for they have too great a love for sensual pleasures. They will perhaps send for the ministers of Christ as Herod did for John and hear them gladly, but touch them in their Herodias, tell them that they must part with such or such a darling pleasure, and with wicked Ahab they cry out, Have you foundly found me, O my enemy? Tell them of the necessity of rejecting the world and self-denial, and it is as difficult for them to hear as if you were to bid them cut off a right hand or pluck out a right eye. They cannot think our blessed Lord requires so much at their hands, though an inspired apostle has commanded us to mortify our members which are upon earth, 
and who himself, even after he had converted thousands and was very near arrived to the end of his race, yet professed that it was his daily practice to keep under his body and bring it into subjection, unless after he had preached to others he himself should be cast away. But some men would be wiser than this great apostle and chalk us out what they falsely imagine an easier way to happiness. They would flatter us. We may go to heaven without offering cutting off our sensual appetites and enter into the straight gate without striving against our carnal inclinations. And this is another reason why so many are only almost and not altogether Christians. The fifth and last reason I will assign why so many are only almost Christians is a fickleness and instability of temper. It has been no doubt a misfortune that many a minister and sincere Christian has met with to weep and wail over numbers of promising converts who seemingly began in the spirit, but after a while fell away and basely ended in the flesh. This is not for want of right notions in religion, nor out of a fear of man, nor from the love of money or of a sensual pleasure, but through an instability and fickleness of temper. They looked upon religion merely for novelty, as something which pleased them for a while, but after their curiosity was satisfied, they laid it aside again, like the young man that came to see Jesus with a linen cloth about his naked body. They have followed him for a season, but when temptations came to take hold of them, for want of a little more resolution, they have been stripped of all their good intentions and fled away naked. They at first, like a tree planted by the waterside, grew up and flourished for a while, but having no root in themselves, no inward principle of holiness and piety, like Jonah's gourd, they were soon dried up and withered. In short, they set out well in their journey to heaven, but finding the way either narrower or longer than they expected, through an unsteadiness of temper, they have made an eternal halt and so returned like the dog to his vomit, or like the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the moor. But I tremble to pronounce the fate of such unstable professors, who, having put their hands to the plow for want of a little more resolution, shamefully look back. How will I repeat to them that dreadful threatening? If any man draw back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. And again, it is impossible... That is exceedingly difficult at least for those who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and the powers of the world to come if they should fall away, to be renewed again to repentance. The gospel is so severe against apostates, yet many that begun well through a fickleness of temper, oh, that none of us here present may ever be such, have been by this means of a number of those that turn back to perdition. And this is the fifth and last reason I will give why so many are only almost and not altogether Christians. We proceed now to the general thing proposed, namely, to consider the folly of being no more than an almost Christian. And the first proof I will give of the folly of such a proceeding is that it is ineffectual to salvation. It is true such men are almost good, but almost to hit the mark is really to miss it. God requires us to love him with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our strength, 
He loves us too well to admit any rival, because so far as our hearts are empty of God, so far must they be unhappy. The devil, like the false mother that came before Solomon, would have our hearts divided, as she would have had the child. But God, like the true mother, will have all or none. My son, give me your heart, your whole heart, is the general call to all. And if this be not done, we never can expect the divine mercy. People may play the hypocrite, but God at the great day will strike them dead, as he did Ananias and Sapphira by the mouth of his servant Peter, for pretending to offer him all their hearts, when they kept back from him the greatest part. They may perhaps impose upon their fellow creatures for a while, but he that enabled Ahijah to cry out, Come in, you wife of Jeroboam, when she came disguised to inquire about her sick son, will also discover them through their most artful pretenses, and if their hearts are not wholly with him, appoint them their portion with hypocrites and unbelievers. But secondly, what renders a halfway piety more inexcusable is that it is not only insufficient to our own salvation, but also very harmful to that of others. An almost Christian is one of the most hurtful creatures in the world. He is a wolf in sheep's clothing. He is one of those false prophets our blessed Lord bids us beware of in his Sermon on the Mount, who would persuade men that the way to heaven is broader than it really is, and thereby, as it was observed before, enter not into the kingdom of God themselves, but those that are entering in they hinder. These these are the men that would turn the world into a lukewarm spirit, that hang out false lights, and so shipwreck unthinking benighted souls in their voyage to the haven of eternity. These are they who are greater enemies to the cross of Christ than infidels themselves, for of an unbeliever every one will be aware. But an almost Christian, through his subtle hypocrisy, draws away many after him, and therefore must expect to receive the greater condemnation. But thirdly, as it is most harmful to observe and hurtful to others, so it is the greatest instance of ingratitude we can express toward our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. For did he come down from heaven and shed his precious blood to purchase these hearts of ours, and will we only give him half of them? Or how can we say we love him when our hearts are not holy with him? How can we call him our Savior when we will not endeavor sincerely to approve ourselves to him, and so let him see the labor of his soul and be satisfied? To add a word or two of exhortation to you, to excite you to be not only almost, but altogether Christians, oh, let us reject all base and treacherous treatment of our King and Savior, of our God and Creator. Let us not take some pains all our lives to go to heaven, and yet plunge ourselves into hell at the end. Let us give to God our whole hearts, and no longer stumble between two opinions. If the world be God, let us serve that. If pleasure be a God, let us serve that. But if the Lord is God, let us, oh, let us serve him alone. Why, why should we stand out any longer? Why should we not wholly renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, which, like so many spiritual chains, bind down our souls and hinder them from flying up to God? What are we afraid of? Is not God able to reward our entire obedience? 
If he is, as the almost Christian's lame way of serving him seems to grant, why then will he not serve him entirely? For the same reason we do so much. Why do we not do more? Or do we think that being only half religious will make you happy, but that going farther will render you miserable and uneasy? This, my brother, is delusion all over. For what is it but this half-piety, this wavering between God and the world, that makes so many that are seemingly well-disposed such utter strangers to the comforts of religion? They choose just so much of religion as will disturb them in their lusts and follow their lusts so far as to deprive themselves of the comforts of religion. Whereas, on the contrary, would they sincerely leave all in affection and give their hearts wholly to God, they would then, and they cannot until then, experience the unspeakable pleasure of having a mind at unity with itself and enjoy such a peace of God which even in this life passes all understanding, and which they were entire strangers to before. It is true, if we will devote ourselves entirely to God, we must meet with contempt. But then it is because contempt is necessary to heal our pride. We must renounce some sensual pleasures. But then it is because those unfit us for spiritual ones, which are infinitely better. We must renounce the love of the world. But then... It is that we may be filled with the love of God, and when that has once enlarged our hearts, we will, like Jacob, when he served for his beloved Rachel, think nothing too difficult to undergo, no hardships too tedious to endure, because of the love we will then have for our dear Redeemer. So easy, so delightful will be the ways of God even in this life. But when once we throw off these bodies and our souls are filled with all the fullness of God, oh, what heart can conceive, what tongue can express, with what unspeakable joy and consolation will we then look back on our past sincere and hearty services. Think you then, my dear hearers, we will repent we have done too much. Or rather, think you not, we will be ashamed that we did no more, and blush we were so backward to give up all to God when he intended hereafter to give us himself. Let me conclude, my brethren, to have always before you the unspeakable happiness of enjoying God and think that every degree of holiness you neglect, every act of piety you omit, is a jewel taken out of your crown, a degree of blessedness lost in the vision of God. Oh, do, but always think and act, so that you will no longer be laboring to compound matters between God and the world, but, on the contrary, be daily fighting to give up yourselves more and more to Him. You will be always watching, always praying, always aspiring after farther degrees of purity and love, and consequently always preparing yourself for a fuller sight and enjoyment of that God in whose presence there is fullness of joy, and at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Amen. One of the last reasons that Whitfield gives for people being an almost Christian. He talks about how a minister will see someone come to know the Lord or have a conversion experience, but then, you know, not long after they're no longer attending church or reading their Bible or praying, they're kind of, they've fallen out, you don't hear from them anymore, and, you know, that's the end of it. 
And I think so many of us can relate to knowing someone who either went through that or experienced that. You've seen that happen so often. And Whitfield just says, look, this is someone who had kind of a fickleness in them, and they weren't really coming to God for any other reason, really. They just wanted a new experience. It was something new, felt exciting and fun, and now they're kind of moving on looking for the next thing. I really enjoyed this part of the sermon, not because of what it stands for. It's a very sad fact, but I've never heard anyone really describe and explain what that is exactly, as well as I think Whitfield did in An Almost Christian, as, as sad as that is. Thank you for listening to Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Jim Ingalls. If you enjoyed today's episode on George Whitfield, please visit our, our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes here at Revive Thoughts. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts and would like to help the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you can re- leave us a review. These reviews really help us with algorithms and getting the word out on the show, and it's, it's a big deal. It really does help us out. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by The In-Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. On The In-Between Podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world, ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse, how to not hate your in-laws, ways to save money for your next vacation, and how to use the Enneagram in your relationships. Join us, Daniel and Christina M. as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to imbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.